Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosophy, the one true podcast and the only podcast used uh, as a secret source for Matthew and Luke since January of 2009. Now, I, I don't know if Irreligiosophy has been used as a secret source, but I've certainly been selling a lot of our secret sauce. All right, before we get to the main meat of the podcast, in lieu of skunk dicks this week, uh, I'd like to seriously discuss uh, something that has rocked the skeptical community over the last week and a half. Now, now, literally, you know it's important if I have heard about it. So, did you hear about it before I told you? No, I just so, heard about it about an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> literally, Leighton is the only person in the skeptical movement who has not heard about this. Okay. So, uh, in order to bring Leighton up to speed, we're going to just go ahead and play this video uh, from Rebecca Watson of, of Skeptic uh, and her elevator encounter. You were all fantastic. I love talking to you guys. Um, all of you, except for the, the one man who um, didn't really grasp, I think, what I was saying on the panel, because um, at the bar later that night, actually at four in the morning, um, we were at the hotel bar. 4 a.m., I said, you know, I've had enough, guys. I'm exhausted. Going to bed. Uh, so I walked to the elevator, and a man got on the elevator with me and said, don't take this the wrong way. But I find you very interesting, and I would like to talk more. Would you like to come to my hotel room for coffee? Um, just a word to the wise here, guys. Uh, don't do that. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, I don't really know how else to explain how this makes me incredibly uncomfortable, but I'll just sort of lay it out that I was a single woman, you know, in a foreign country at 4 a.m. in a hotel elevator with you just you and I don't invite me back to your hotel room right after I finished talking about how it creeps me out and makes me uncomfortable when men sexualize me in that manner so that's that's what happened at the uh, atheist skeptical meeting in Dublin uh, no first of all I want to say I'm not quite sure why all the feminists are up in arms about this because that was clearly a dude yeah, that that's a dude on there talking about this, and uh, and quite literally, uh, just just because you have problems with gay men picking you up inside of elevators, uh, do you really have to YouTube about this shit? Now this uh, comes especially close to home to Layton, because there's been a lot of talk about who the man in the elevator was. And we've done a massive amount of research and found out that it actually was Leighton. Yeah, well, I, I gotta admit, this was my first skeptical conference. Eh, literally, it was a sea of testosterone. I, I saw tits, I followed. Yeah, how can you blame me? It is a skeptical conference. Fortunately, uh, we have uh, cell phone footage of uh, the elevator incident. We've been able to extract it from Leighton's cell phone, the audio. And uh, in his defense, we want to set the record straight and play exactly what happened. Yeah, you know, uh, to all the feminists out there, I, I would like to apologize. Uh, I didn't mean to put my neck out there and ask her out. Perhaps I should have asked to go back to her room for coffee. Uh, someone should point out the etiquette in this. Well, um, I, I think the footage speaks for itself. Uh, let's play it. All right. Hey, baby. I'm a Coast Guard sniper, and I'm going to be shipped out tomorrow morning at 0430. And that's all the time I'm going to need to get you coffee, if you know what I mean. I don't know what you mean. Look, baby, I listened to your speech about feminism and all that shit, and I got to tell you, my male privilege is throbbing. I'm not sure I understand where this is going. Well, it's going up to my room for a conversation that should last, oh, uh, three minutes if I can get my sail to full mast. Uh, what? Baby, I promise not to pull anchor until my tongue has swabbed every inch of your hairy deck. You didn't really listen to my talk, did you? Come on, sugar, tell me the truth. If I jumped on your back, would you beat me off? You're making me feel very uncomfortable. Baby... If beauty stank, you'd be the cornfield shit. Um, you're starting to creep me out. Just starting? Is it the mustache? Don't worry. Mustache rides are free. Okay, that's inappropriate. If you'd like to see my penis, sugar, there's an electron microscope downstairs in my room. 
Slow down, baby. Let me take off my Coast Guard-issued welding goggles. Oh my fucking god, is that a unibrow? Wow. It's a lot brighter in here than at the bar. I had no idea they made glasses that fucking thick. Um, they're a prescription. Okay, baby. If we're going to continue this conversation, it's going to take a lot more tequila. Try to make yourself a little less nauseating while I go scrape my scabs. That's repulsive. Come on now, I'm making an effort, shouldn't you? I am so going to YouTube about this. He will rue the day he messed with this skeptic. You know, uh, PZ Myers did a post on uh, the Decent Human Being's Guide to Getting Laid at Skeptical Conferences. He could have saved himself a lot of time by just posting that audio. Yeah, I gotta admit, I was in pretty rare form, but uh, hey, uh, you know, you get a little bit of tequila in me, my Coast Guard issue goggles, and I start seeing the world in a different way. What we really want to know is, are you really a Coast Guard sniper? (laughs) There's only one way to know, and that would be to go on a mission with me. All right. The actual content of this podcast is Q. Uh, So a lot of people have been asking in the contents, what the fuck is Q? Yeah, in fact, uh, people most times have no idea what it is, so uh, why why don't we go into a little bit about what Q is, because this is something that actually started back in the 1800s, 1801 if I'm not mistaken, and it came under a different name and then was refined later in the 1830s to what is known as Q now. So in the early 1800s, German scholars uh, were treating biblical text, the New Testament text, as any other literary document. Uh, noticed that there was a relationship between the Synoptic Gospels. Um, there was a lot of the same stories found in each of these. And typically what happened was Matthew and Luke would uh, agree with each other on the stories that they found in Mark. Now there's a, there's a little bit more than just agreement here. We're talking some of the phrases are verbatim. Verbatim. Yeah, well that, it argues for dependency certainly. A lot of this stuff. For example, um, 90... of Mark is found in Matthew. So if we didn't have Mark preserved, we could reconstruct 92% of it from Matthew. If uh, Luke, uh, by the way, has about 50% of Mark, and if you add them together, you get something like 95% of Mark is found in both Matthew and Luke. And a lot of that stuff is verbatim. So that's the the literary dependency. Um, They eventually figured out that Mark was a precursor to Matthew and Luke, and Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source. And uh, uh, the, the one problem that remained was there was a lot of material that is found nearly verbatim in Matthew and Luke, but it's not found in Mark, uh, to the tune of about 4,500 words. And that material includes the Sermon on the Mount, most of the parables, Lord's Prayer. It's a bunch of sayings. Um, so the question is, where did this stuff come from? And once again, these same sayings a lot of times are in the same order and verbatim which is where Q comes into effect. Now, uh, as, I, as I pointed out, in the 1830s, Q was refined, and that's where it got its name, but then it was dropped for a very long time because people didn't exactly think that it was a gospel because what Q is, is although it's about 4,500 words, Q is a list of sayings. It's a collection of sayings. Um, Q simply means Kavella, which is German for source. So the Germans themselves uh, showing immense creativity, uh, labeled this second source, source. Yeah, Q is source, and thanks to German ingenuity, we now have it spread all across to piss off Christians. So, you're right in that um, no one really considered this uh, a true gospel. Um, So, the theory was kind of set aside until about the 1890s, when they found uh, some scraps of papyrus which just had a collection of Jesus said sayings. Jesus said, blah, blah, blah. Jesus said, blah, blah, blah. Now, this was the Gospel of Thomas, and I'm not sure if it was the late 1800s or the early 1900s when the Nag Hammadi was found. 1940s. 1940s, whatever. (laughs) About 50 years later, Nag Hammadi documents were found, and and that was when they found out that these sayings, papyri, were part of the Gospel of Thomas. Exactly. That, because this is actually stated in there, this says, this is the Gospel of Thomas, and then it's a list of sayings, and that's what revived Q. So now they're forced to take it seriously, because before, 
Before uh, Nag Hammadi and the Gospel of Thomas, uh, no one thought or argued that uh, any gospel of Jesus could be complete without a resurrection story and a passion narrative. And especially without miracles, because miracles are rampant in uh, Matthew and Luke, not so much in Mark, but... So, um, they thought if Q existed, it had to be a supplement to the gospels, right? But it couldn't be a gospel itself. Now, you have this document that claims to be a gospel, the Gospel of Thomas, but it's just a collection of sayings. So that reinvigorated uh, scholarship in the queue. So what they're trying to explain, not only the verbatim or near verbatim agreement, but they're trying to explain three things. Matthew and Luke don't agree with each other against Mark in the stories found in Mark, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that just says that each is editing Mark independently. So when you find the story in Mark, you, you might have Luke going off or, or Matthew going off, but when they go off, they don't agree with each other. And that, but, once again, is evidence of two people with written document in two separate geographic locations writing about the same event and what their views of the written document they're reading is. Uh, number two, there's a high degree of agreement between Matthew and Luke in the wording of this Q material. Practically zero agreement in where they place the sayings within the background of Mark. So they uh, take these sayings and they place them in different areas against Mark. So, you know, in Mark, Mark says a great deal about Jesus as a teacher. Jesus was a great teacher. He taught a great many things. But if you read Mark, it doesn't really say what he taught. No, it just talks about really him walking around. So you can see Matthew and Luke reading Mark, kind of liking it, kind of not. Luke says that there's no, you know, gospel uh, that, that he's basing stuff on that's entirely accurate. That's why he's writing his, his gospel. So, um... You can see them looking at this, being unsatisfied with that, casting about for a, a set of sayings, and here you go. you got a sayings gospel to stick in there. Now, the last part that, that they're trying to make sense of with the Q hypothesis is in some ways the most important. Um, even though the Q material isn't placed by Matthew and Luke in the same area relative to Mark, about half the word count, 40%, is placed in the same relative order. So if you have three sayings, uh, those three sayings might be placed in different areas in Luke as they are in Matthew, but they'll be placed in the same order. So in Matthew, he might say a saying in Capernaum. In Luke, it might be in Jerusalem. But those sayings follow each other. So that says, since uh, the, the relative order is the same, that strongly argues for a second document. This had to be a written document. This aren't just a collection of oral sayings, because then the order would be all jumbled up. So these guys have to be working from a common written document. So the question, it, it seems uh, there's a near universal consensus um, about this two document or two source hypothesis um, that Matthew and Luke used two documents or two sources. One was Mark and the other was Q. Uh, so the question then becomes who wrote Q? Well see and that in and of itself, the hypothesis comes from the idea of what Q is all about because Q as we have stated, is not concerned with Jesus' death. In fact, it barely mentions it. It doesn't really mention anything about Jesus' resurrection, and it's all specifically concerned with one particular group of people, and that is the poorer class, and how their daily lives revolve around this. In fact, even the Lord's Prayer sounds almost like a petition to the benevolence of a particular ruler and follows the same exact format of a petition to one who is in a higher ring of authority. Right. In a certain sense, it's obvious to say that uh, who, who wrote Q, well, it had to be written by the scribes. Well, <laughs> the scribes are the only people who are literate. But there are certain things in Q that, that uh, mirror scribal activities. The Lord's Prayer is one of them. If you go up as a poor farmer, you're illiterate, you approach a scribe and you say, look, I want to beg relief from some of my debt from my landlord. Typically, the scribe would say, Oh, great and wonderful landlord, you, you're totally awesome. You butter him up, you kiss ass and as then you much make as your, you can. You make your requests, and then you butter him up again. That's exactly the, the, um, the format. structure of the Lord's Prayer. It's a format. It's a scribal format. Um, the, the format of an administrative petition, which scribes did this daily, right? Um, it yeah, was literally, this was, this was probably just a form letter, the, the same type of thing that always went out. Right. So we'll get into that a little bit more later. But if you look at the content of Q, if you take the 4,500 words and extract it from the context of Matthew and Luke, 
what is Q interested in? Q is interested in debt, uh, requisitioning of persons or animals, divorce. These are all concerns uh, that scribes would take up in their daily activities, and it would be concerns of scribes in a rural area. Yeah. Now, the important thing to remember is a large portion of Q just deals with the subsistence of the people itself. Well, you look at the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. That's just getting by. Right? Yeah, that's just feed us. We're hungry. So uh, Q, like we said, is about 4,500 words, probably composed by scribe or scribes in the Galilee. It, it, unlike Mark, it has a very firm grasp on Galilean geography. And, and that's kind of an important thing to bring up, because uh, whoever wrote Mark, it's readily apparent that they didn't really understand the geography, because you got Jesus walking miles out of the way just to get to one spot. Uh, which, by the way, Matthew, who is aware of... Uh, Judean geography will routinely correct Mark when he makes those mistakes. So it, it's composed by someone who is a scribe and who knows Galilee very well, and probably in the village life, given the content of Q about subsistence, uh, debt relief. That was probably uh, very much involved in the councils and in these small rural areas and the right. dealings of different towns coming to this one man. So, so when you extract this from the, their context, um, actually some significant differences crop up between the synoptics and Q. So let's go into those. Um, I'm assuming everyone's familiar with the synoptics. <laughs> well, I'm sure that's just standard reading material before people listen to our show. I mean. So geography, we touched on this already. Mark uses geography uh, to situate Jesus' travels and to provide some um, narrative context. So he's using these cities to show that Jesus is moving around preaching, right? Yeah, wandering around. Mark is, is very concerned about where exactly Jesus is. Right. Q uses geographical locations uh, mostly as symbols. So when it references Sodom, it's always as a place of terrible judgment. Jerusalem is a place where prophets are rejected. Um, the bigger cities in the Galilee, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, those are places that the Jesus movement was rejected, right? The Gentile cities um, are, are used as, as places whose inhabitants stand in judgment over this generation, meaning the people in the Galilee. Uh, rural settings, houses and villages, those are places where the, the Jesus movement, the Q movement, uh, would be uh, accepted. They're places of proclamation and healing, as opposed to markets, plazas, palaces, assemblies, all these urban settings. Those are places of strife, arrogance, and false discipleship. So if, you gotta, if you're reading this document or it's being read to you, you understand if you go to the villages, you're going to be accepted. If you go to the big city, you're going to get rejected or at least treated with uh, arrogance or indifference. Now, this is actually a very important point. In Mark, he uses geography, and this is copied in Luke and Matthew. But the important thing is Q uses them as symbols. This is a, a, a very uh, strong point towards two different writers, two different writing styles. And just reading it, you can see the different literary techniques in both. So you've you got to take this out of uh, Matthew and Luke to see this, because Matthew and Luke are Gospels that are primarily oriented to urban settings, right? Matthew, Jerusalem, uh, is uh, kind of hovers large over it and is a big urban center. Luke essentially ignores the countryside, right? Especially in Acts, where Paul goes around city to city setting up churches, right? Never farm to farm. It's always city to city. Yeah, go for the largest amount of people is what it was. Right, so a queue, villages and the rural people's houses and farms become places filled with belief and piety, right? The small town of the 1950s flavor. Yeah, I mean, this is the same concept my dad used to move us to Rose Canyon from Park City. Now, not only was it that he adopted a shit ton of kids, but he also stated that Park City was getting too big, and so in order to preserve the ideals of the people, we moved up in the mountains far away from people. And that is the same general idea that is run through people's brains with Q. This is a guy who likes the country. He likes the piety he finds in country people. Piety. Piety. Uh, so, <laughs> in contrast to the Gentile focus of Luke and Acts, um, especially, right, where there's this great commission at the end yeah. of Luke and 
Paul goes around uh, proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. Q's world uh, centered really on the Galilee, on towns like Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Nazareth, I guess is the Q's name for Nazareth. Uh, it's, it's a Judean world. Gentiles are clearly placed on the outside. Um, remember Mark, which has all of these controversies over Sabbath violations. You know, the, the Pharisees are pointing out that uh, Jesus' followers are gathering grain on the Sabbath, and uh, there's disputes about food laws. Q has no expectation of any Gentile mission, of any spread of Christianity as a as a distinct sect from uh, Judaism or, well, or the new religion. It would have absolutely no reason to, because uh, as we were pointing out, out in the countryside, you were going to get pe people who are uh, more believing, they're poor people, so they, they do what they have to to get through the day, and that's what this is aimed at, the people who right. aren't arguing with one there, another. There's no thought that there's a outside world that you're going to bring your message to, right? The kingdom of God is going to come to you. Q's got no expectation of giving up any Jewish table practices, unlike Luke. Uh, and unlike Paul, it doesn't forbid or even mention circumcision because it presupposes an entirely, completely Jewish environment. Uh, no one's going to argue about circumcision because you're not talking to outsiders who, you know, it's a surprise to. It's just accepted. It's a given. Yeah, everybody knows. that. That's why it's nothing more than sayings. And we'll get into the sayings afterwards, and you will see that these are aimed towards country bumpkins, the poor, those who have masters, who are tilling the fields and handing the best of their crop to their masters. Yeah, so on the contrary, Q complains the Pharisees don't keep enough of the law, right? So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're saying, well, you know, you, you've got to be... Um, uh, you can make some exceptions, basically. Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. Son of man is Lord of the Sabbath, blah, blah, blah. You know, what goes into your mouth cannot defile you. It's what goes out of your mouth. These are the, these are the arguments they're making. In Q, he's saying to the Pharisees, you're not righteous enough. Um, so Q says, woe for you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and give up justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these one has to do without giving up those. So he's saying, yeah, sure, you tithe all this stuff, but don't give up any concepts of justice and mercy and faithfulness, right? Woe to you, Pharisees, for you purify the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of plunder and dissipation. Purify the inside of the cup, and its outside will be pure. So don't, basically, that's kind of the same as saying don't pray in, in public, right? <laughs> pray in private. So what do we got in Q? We got a thoroughly Jewish, rural, Galilean gospel not one that already acknowledges a Gentile mission or any of the doctrinal debates that, that such a mission would provoke. In this sense, because of this, it probably either predates the letters of Paul or it's contemporaneous with them. and It's completely unaware of them. Uh, like the letter of James, it provides us with a document produced by and for the earliest followers of Jesus. So this is, this is a very early gospel, probably before or at the same time period of Paul, but unlike Paul, who centered in the Gentile communities, this is right where Jesus was. And this, this is was a, in the Galilee. This is an important concept. Q possibly predates Mark, Matthew, Luke, and is around the time of Paul. So these are possibly the most accurate sayings if there was an actual Jesus. If Jesus existed and he roamed the Galilee teaching as a, as a cynic sage, this is the best shot we got in Q at actually getting to uh, what Jesus actually said. There's a, a slight problem with that because there's evidence that someone got in there and edited some of these Q sayings. If you compare them to the Gospel of Thomas, for example, some of the Q sayings look like they've been edited, and the Gospel of Thomas, which is later than Q, actually probably preserves some more original versions of the sayings. So um, one of the reasons why people think that um, no one else used Q is like First Clement, for example. He will mention sayings that, see, that sound like Q, but he never mentions any of the sayings that look like they've been edited. So he either is not using Q, he's, he's relying on an oral source, uh, or he's using something else entirely. So he's either getting free-floating sayings or he's not using Q. The one exception to this is James. It looks like James actually used Q because there's evidence that he used the edited form of Q. So we're not getting exactly the um, pristine sayings 
Uh, but uh, unless someone digs up something like the Nag Hammadi library and we suddenly discover Q among the documents, it's this is the closest we have been able to find for what two hundred years now. Yeah, if um, if someone finds an actual uh, papyrus of Q. Um, then all of this will go by the wayside. It, it will be a vindicated hypothesis. And that is the big argument right now, is if Q was such an important document that it was used in both Matthew and Luke, then why is it none of the early church fathers mention it, and why is it it wasn't really preserved? Right. Um, there have been several responses to that. The big question is what happened to Q, right? Yeah, if what it was so important that, that two of the uh, evangelists used it uh, as the second major source of their Gospels, well, what happened to it? Why wasn't it preserved or copied? And one of the answers may be that uh, it was just an accident of fate, that it never made its way to Alexandria where competent copyists could actually get a shot at copying it. If it stayed in the humid Galilee, for example, uh, the Middle East, then it probably would not have been preserved. It would have uh, gotten destroyed with all the rest of the documents. Possibly the Q community went into uh, Jerusalem <laughs> and then got smashed uh, just along with uh, the rest of the Jews in 70 of the Common Era. Yeah. Um, Literally, there's there's dozens of reasons. And this is, once it, again, why Egypt is so important, yeah. is documents within Egypt, because of the dry humid air. I mean, they are literally finding mounds of trash heaps where Egypt was sending their trash and they're digging up papyri in there because it's preserved in that dry country. Right. It's also a, a possibility that some of these documents never got attributed to one of the early apostles or friends of the apostles and then were just not copied. Were just thrown out. Um, so... The next section in Q is about miracles in the kingdom of God. Let's talk about miracles in Mark. Uh, the function of miracles in Mark is to point out that there's this messianic secret. Who's the Messiah? The miracles, the demonic exorcisms, they're all designed to point out, hey, uh, Jesus is the Messiah. Even the demons and the pigs recognize Jesus, right? It's these dumb fuck apostles have no fucking clue. Yeah. Well, not only who the Jesus dumb fuck is. apostles, I mean, even the people wandering around. People are wandering around looking up. I mean, fucking demons and pigs looked up and go, oh, master, cast us. Uh, right. I mean, come on. Right. Don't throw, throw us out of this, uh, uh, this person that we've. Yeah, we are legions. Throw us into this. Throw us into the pigs, please, we beg you. Yeah, and then drown Jesus us. is like, mm, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So it, it highlights the secret that, you know, and, and kind of very dimly at the end of the gospel, Peter gets it. He's like, oh, I think you're the Messiah. <laughs> <laughs> Dumb shits. It, it's almost, it's, it, it almost acts as an argument. It's like an anti-apostolic argument. Yeah. Like, these guys are such dumb shits. Literally, where the fuck did Jesus find these <laughs> retards? I, I mean, is he it's still spoon-feeding them? It does backfire, because it's so obvious to the reader that Jesus is the Messiah, but none of these dumb fuck apostles have any fucking clue. So you're like, okay, well, Jesus was the one who chose these dumb fucks, so doesn't that make him a dumb fuck? <laughs> oh, you are the company you keep, right? So <laughs> In contrast to Mark, and remember Mark, when he heals or exercises, he's like, go your way and don't tell anyone, right? Because it's a big secret. Yeah. Um, but there, you know, there's signs. And there's a similar function in John, right? Except John's totally blatant about it. He's walking around fucking healing people. Yeah, he's healing people. people he's, like, he's like, fuck you. Big old finger yeah, in the air at the Pharisees. I'm, I'm giving you guys tons of signs that I'm a Messiah. I do this that you might believe. I'm raising the fucking dead. I'm doing all this shit. Guess what? I'm a Messiah. Yeah. Fuck believe, you. fuckers. In Q... Totally different function. There are only two miracle stories in Q. There's the centurion who comes up and says to Jesus, Hey, would you mind healing my kid? He's sick. And Jesus goes, Yeah, 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 give me a minute. He goes, I don't need a minute. I'm, I'm part of the Roman army. Uh, I know that uh, if I tell my servants to do something, they'll go off and do it. So all I need is your word. And Jesus is like, not anywhere in Israel have I seen anyone with such great faith as this Roman, right? So it, yeah. it, the function of that pretty much is to say uh, this this contract, the faith of this outsider contrasts to you guys. You guys need to get more faith. Yeah, it's a big old stick in the eye saying, you know what? Here's a Roman, the guys we hate, and he has more faith than you do. The other miracle story is an exorcism where um, 
Jesus casts out this demon, and the Pharisees are pissed off. They're like, well, I think you're casting out those demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus gives this crap about, you know, well, if I do it by the power of Satan, what about these other people who are doing it by the power of Satan? Are your uh, Pharisees, are you guys doing it, your sons, and, and doing this by the power of Satan? So um, those are the two miracle stories in Q. That's it, nothing else. That also argues for an early age to Q, right? Yeah. Uh, fewer miracle stories, fewer time to accrete all this uh, extra shit from other stuff. No mention of the virgin birth, right? Neither in Paul's letters nor in Mark. So your three earliest sources, Q, Paul, and Mark, are united in their silence on the virgin birth. No fucking virgin birth. Well, so one point we have to pay close attention to is these Pharisees accusing Jesus. They're accusing him of using the power of evil to, uh, to bring about this exorcism. And Jesus points and says, well, what about these guys exercising over here? This is something that is important because uh, miracles, as it appears, seems to be rampant. In fact, I think we've even discussed on the show Apollonius. The contrary to Jesus, who walked around performing miracles, their disciples argued, the only difference is Apollonius was smart enough to run away rather than crucified, and then he was raised up just like Jesus. Right. So in Q, they don't seem to be a demonstration of, of Jesus' um, identity as the Messiah, right? They're not revealing some secret identity of Jesus' Messiah. They're just taken for granted. Well, miracles happen, right? Yeah, they happen. Um, Everybody's using the power. So what happens is he sets up miracles, and then he'll give like a speech or a bunch of sayings that follow them. So for Q, miracles are associated with the advent of God's kingdom. So in Q 7.19, and by the way, when I um, recite this, uh, I believe the scholarly convention is that Q sources are cited in their Luke context. So Q 7.19 is Luke 7.19. Um, you had to choose one of the two between Matthew and Luke. <laughs> it may be that Luke may have preserved um, closer what they think is the original Q more often than Matthew, but for whatever reason, uh, when I say Q 7.19, just think Luke if you want to follow along. So when John's followers ask Jesus if he's the one to come, he responds by pointing out the miracles, the wonders that are happening, right? Some healings, raisings of the dead, yeah. preaching to the poor. Preaching Once to the again, poor is a fucking yeah. miracle. Well, I, uh, would you go among those people? I mean, have you seen the <laughs> God, shoes you, they're wearing? God, you people smell bad. Uh, haven't you guys learned to wipe it? It's a miracle. He's preaching to He's us. He's talking to us. Look, look, this man has talked to us. <laughs> what a miracle. <laughs> Uh, in Q, the emphasis is on the presence of the kingdom of God, uh, for which Jesus is a messenger. He might be like a special messenger, but he's not... Oh, the special of the good kind. He's right? not the only messenger. He points out to others, you know, he's not doing all the healings and raising of the dead. So it's not Jesus, per se, that transforms people's lives. It's the advent of God's kingdom. Yeah. So um, that the, the exorcism, that miracle story in Q, where he's, you know... They accuse him of being in league with the demonic. Jesus says this doesn't make any sense, right? Even if it did, would they say that about their other Judean exorcists? So, you know, other people are exercising the demons. So it's not the power to do that that sets Jesus apart. It's uh, the fact that this is happening now. Uh, and, and it's so rampant that the kingdom of God is upon you guys. So, so when people seek a sign in Q, right? So this is Q1130. They're told that they have already been given one, the sign of Jonah. Now, Matthew... You know, Jonah was swallowed by a whale, was in there for three yeah, days. Three days, therefore. Spit out again, right? Blah, blah, blah. Matthew interprets this as the future sign of Jesus' resurrection. Now, as we'll talk about later, Jesus' resurrection is not in view in Q. There's not a single message of Jesus' resurrection. No resurrection appearance is nothing. Yeah. In fact, Q is almost, totally silent. It almost points to a different way of viewing Jesus' death. Right. We'll talk about that, too. So, Q argues that the Queen of the South. And the people of Nineveh repented when they recognized God's power in Jonah, right? It wasn't miracles that made them repent. They recognized God's power. So he then points out that something greater than Jonah is here. Notice he doesn't say someone greater he says than Jonah. something. Something. That something is the kingdom of God. Um, this is similar to John's gospel, you know, the Doubting Thomas story. Because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who don't see me and yet believe. Um, so miracles... Miracles seem to be ambiguous in Q and open to interpretation. They're kind of all over the place, and the interpretation Q typically gives is, hey, lots of miracles, that equals the kingdom of God. Yeah. 
the power that is being used in each of these miracles is stemming from one source. It, it's almost like the hippies handing out the flowers in the airport. This is right. the same type of teaching. Right. There might be one hippie that's that's more hippie-ish than the rest of them. <laughs> They're all hippies. Yes, yes. Uh, you know the type we're talking about where you look down and he's fucking braided his toe hair. That's that's Jesus. That's Jesus right there. <laughs> the, the hippiest of them all. Yeah, right. uh, so let's talk about ethics in Q. Um, we've postulated that Q is the result of a rural culture, right? So you'd expect Q to have ethical concerns that reflect this origin. Yes, the poor people, the right. farmers, the So rurals. subsisting, uh, reproducing, managing your relations at the village level, not the city level. Defending villagers against unfair practices and attacks from the outside, right? Like taxes and rents and, and debts. Uh, indeed, Q does have these concerns. And they're highlighted probably best in the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, and, and we pointed out before that, once again, the way this follows is much like a scribe petitioning a landowner for maybe a little bit more time. Right. You know, you butter up God, you say how wonderful God is, and then you go into, and there are three requests in the Lord's Prayer after you get through the introduction. You, you petition God, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um... That delivers from evil, by the way, this is Q11, 2 through 4, probably is a later insertion. Uh, it probably didn't have that originally. Well, from the sounds of it right now, let's, let's look at what we're asking for. Daily bread. We're asking for food. Forgive us our debts. That is a massive, massive concern about rural people. I mean, we are talking the landowners make all the money, and they get the finest of everything in right. order to pay for the land these farmers are working. Right. So you're talking about debt as the... So subsistence, clearly, in, in the first petition to give us this day our daily bread. The second petition, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. I love that one because it's, you know, hey, we'll, we'll forgive you. Um, of course, we're not... Uh, we haven't loaned any shit out to anybody, but hey, I'll be happy to... You know, who says this stuff? The homeless people say this shit, right? The yeah, homeless people look up and say, hey, I'm willing to forgive you for being rich... Why don't you forgive lending me all that money? You know that one seed I gave this guy three years ago? I'd be willing to forgive that for this mountain of gold coins that I owe this other dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, you never hear lenders say that. <laughs> <laughs> never say, you never hear landlords forgive people debt. All right, um, so this is clearly coming from the minority, right? The, the oppressed interest, the villagers, uh, the farmers. Now, debt's a serious and ever-present problem for poor farmers. Typically, what they do is they would agree to farm the land in exchange to, to paying, you know, the, the landlord their uh, uh, first fruits, right? If they're unable to pay their debts, and this could happen in a single season. If you don't make enough produce to pay your debts, uh, you're sold into slavery. You and your family are sold into slavery. Well, think about it. This so think, imagine that ha hanging over your head every fucking yeah. year. And, and this has a lot of precedence to it. Look at Cain and Abel. Look at their sacrifices. God only accepted one sacrifice. You don't think that these landowners are going to be... These believers in the Bible aren't going to follow that same practice? You give us, the landowners, your best. Right. If you look at ancient rent or lease agreements uh, in the first century, um, you, you see that the, they often stipulated that the landlord was to be played with the, paid back with the cleanest, best produce... He had safeguards against mixing in low-quality grain or heavier substances. You know, they used to, uh, when they paid back with hay, for example, they'd, pay, they'd bring a wagon load and they'd put rocks underneath the hay. <laughs> so they'd, they'd weigh the wagon, right? And uh, they'd be getting paid back with rocks instead of hay. So th then they had safeguards, you know, against this stuff. They'd weigh an empty wagon. They'd load the hay in themselves. You know, this was a zero-sum game. If, if the farmer won out, that means the landlord lost. If the landlord wins, the farmer loses. Literally, whoever can think of the most conniving way to make money wins. So the solution to this for the Q community is to just kind of forgive everyone's debt <laughs> and not keep track of uh, giving and taking let's, let, let's see. Once again, who would want debt forgiven? <laughs> The this ones not, lending the fucking money or the ones borrowing? The Q the community money. is not made up of landlords. 
No. It's made up of farmers, right? Yeah, they, that see. seems really good. Let's wow. see. No cool. landlords, uneducated farmers. Mm-hmm. I will give you my hoe, and I'll forget about it if I get my if I get your lawnmower. If I get to keep this house, right. I will give you this lawnmower. Exactly. So this is kind of this utopian idea that there'd be this general giving and taking, and, and no one really kept track of anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, this entire idea is propagated again and again throughout time, but mankind is not capable of not being selfish. We are a bunch of selfish sons of bitches. <laughs> we, you know, by and large, we, we act in our own self-interest, absolutely. Yeah. Um, to uh, Q, in Q, 630, it says, To the one who asks of you, give. And from the one who borrows, do not ask back what is yours. So, so Q sees this system of debts and indebtedness and replaces it by this kind of general system of, sure, you can have whatever the fuck you general want. General give take and take. It. Yeah, it, and when it, I ask you, you give me some shit, too. It works just no fine trying. until you go over to borrow someone else's shit. And then suddenly they're like, well, I, I kind of need to use that wheelbarrow. Yeah. yeah, so in Q638, this is kind of a, uh, I, I don't know, I, this is like a, they're throwing a bone to the landlords here. Um, and with the measure you use to measure out, it will be measured back to you, right? So in ancient times, it's in the lender's best interest to use the same scoop or scales to lend your grain or seeds as to be repaid with, right? So you don't want to go in there and uh, say, all right, here's my scoop. I'll give you a bunch of shit. I gave you three scoops. And then you come back and that fucking farmer comes back with a thimble, right? Here's your three thimbles back. There you go. I paid you back. Yeah. So you, you keep your same scoop. Yeah. Notice also that uh, this this idea, uh, this economic idea where you use that same scoop or your, your same scales uh, to lend is to be repaid, how naturally that progresses to the golden rule, treat others how you'd like them to treat you. Yeah, I mean... It was not fucking original. It was a, a natural outgrowth of the economic realities of the time. And that's something that always irritates me is when you get Christians out there hollering about, we created ethics, we did this. No, this is... This is, once again, a zero-sum game. Literally, it's almost funny to me that the Q teaches that everybody should forgive their debtors, and then they throw out a bone with, oh, you know, what you're measuring to measure out should be measured back to you. I mean, it's literally uh, just unoriginal, is what the idea is. It's it's really interesting, because it's almost... You can use that back to the um, person who... uh, I th- the, probably the whole thing is to say that, look, if you keep track of all this shit, then we'll keep track of your shit. But if you don't keep track of it, well, then no one will keep track of it. How's and l- that? And let's see. Who has more of a reason to keep track of the money, a rich fucker or some poor farmer? Hmm. <laughs> so um, there's also a pessimism about court cases, right? And the, Interesting from the position of the farmer with no fucking money at all. Who's going to win the court cases every single fucking time? Yeah. So in Q12, 58 through 59, I love this shit because this is Jesus himself talking. This is Jesus talking. Remember, Jesus, the same man who said, if a slave escapes, return him to the master. Keep that in mind. That was Paul. Oh, well. (laughs) Oh, fuck. I keep doing that. So here it is, Q12, 58 through 59. While you go along with your opponent on the way, Make an effort to get loose from him, lest the opponent hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the assistant, and the assistant throw you in prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you pay the last quadrant. So Jesus' advice to someone who's being hauled to court, for whatever fucking reason, not paying his debts probably most likely, get the fuck out of there. <laughs> get the fuck out of there. Yeah, in fact, you will only- be fucked if you keep. Uh, go into that court case. Not only not get the fuck out of there, but get the fuck out of there before you even get near the courthouse because once you go in there, it is beyond their thinking that there is even a chance that they can escape right. or win. There's no fucking way in hell that the judge from a city is going to side with a poor farmer against one of his city folk friends. Yeah. So literally, Jesus is saying, run, you're fucked. Right. So the the final kind of don't lead us into a temptation or do not put us to the test. It's probably a restatement of the two prior petitions. It's just an acknowledgement that the odds are stacked against them so much that so don't even fucking, don't haul me into court, please. <laughs> don't, don't do it. All right. Um, going back uh, to that Beelzebul and demons stuff. Yeah, yeah the casting um, out, the exorcism. 
This is found in Q11, 19 through 20. And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, your sons, by whom do they cast them out? That is why they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then there has come upon you God's reign. So he's saying, well, I cast them out. So do your sons. What do you say about your sons? Now, if, if you agree with your sons, then you've got to look around. God's kingdom is among you. You know, this is what this is the view, Q's view of miracles. Yeah, miracles are rampant. God's kingdom is everywhere. And he's also, interestingly enough, saying, look, put aside your fucking differences, find out what we have in common, and let's all come together against Satan. Satan's the enemy, basically, right? Yeah. We need to defend the kingdom of God, and we need to come against Satan. In uh, Richard Carrier's great article in The Empty Tomb um, about the spiritual body of Christ, you know, two-body view of resurrection... He points out that there are something like 30 fucking Jewish sects at this time. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes. Um, he lists like 10 other ones, and there are up to 30 of those. Uh, so th this was a very fractious time. Yeah. Um, people were concentrating on these minuscule differences. And these Q people are basically saying, look, forget about this shit. Let's all come together. Yeah, th this time frame should be compared to the 1800s, the exact same thing with Joseph Smith going through there. Everybody is looking for the differences in there. And of course, you're going to have sayings, gospels, things popping up to diverge from the actual path and religious path that is yeah, So you're talking ground. about like the burned over district and exactly. all of these different uh, sects of Christianity that have popped up, you know, some think that, you know, you, baptism by immersion, some think that it's okay to just sprinkle, you know, all these fucking Literally tiny little different catalyst. This is a catalyst just rating, waiting to explode. At so the same theme runs through Q7, 33 through 35, when uh, they say, uh, this is Jesus talking again, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, look, a person who was a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom was vindicated by her children. This is one of the reasons some people have um, uh, speculated that, that Q wasn't preserved. Yeah, the, the Greek word for wisdom was Sophia, and so they thought maybe maybe this was uh, initially seen as Gnostic, and uh, because you know Sophia is one of the gods of goddesses of Gnosticism, um, and and Jesus was bringing this divine wisdom to you know light up these divine sparks. Um, that's probably not the case because it's a little early in the first century to be concerned about Gnosticism. That was probably second and third century most, mostly. So the idea again is the same. It's well, let's look at the common ground, right? You 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 look at John and you say he's a demon. I'm totally different over here. I'm doing the opposite of John. You say I'm a drunkard. So let's forget about these differences and, and just pull together in the yeah, kingdom. Of don't forget hippie Jesus. In fact, exactly. this is hippie Jesus at his finest. Exactly. So. The next question is, what's Q's view on wealth? Well, what's hippie Jesus' <laughs> view on wealth is what it should be. Right, so <laughs> this, this will come as a shock to everyone, I think. Um, um, let, let's see. Uh, forgive us our debts. <laughs> Q does not have a positive view of either wealth or wealth-seeking behavior. <laughs> well, let's see. Why would a poor rural community be so against wealth? Right. Q620 says, Blessed are you poor, for God's reign is for you. Now Matthew, that, that's in Luke, Matthew moralized this to blessed are the poor in spirit. He did that with a lot of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Well, uh, fuck you, Matthew. <laughs> blessed are you who hunger and thirst, period. period. <laughs> Literally, Q is worried about those right. who tr have trials and tribulations. Yeah, those day moralizations day. are likely Matthew's additions. Um, the original Q was probably very much concerned about the actual poor, the actual, the actual filling of right. the belly. So Q twelve thirty three through thirty four. Do not treasure for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and gnawing deface, and where robbers dig through and rob. But treasure for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor gnawing defaces, and where robbers do not dig through or rob. For where your treasure is, there will also be your heart. So that's um, a Q saying about forget about the treasures. You know there. They're temporal, you know, they're temporary, they're ephemeral, they're fleeting. There's even, a, um, God, there's this one uh, parable in Q about this rich guy who builds up this massive storehouse, spends a bunch of his money, and he's going to, you know, store a fuckload of grain in there, and then he croaks. <laughs> <laughs> so it's almost like these guys are laughing at the stupidity of this wealthy man, right? 
Well, and, and see, this entire idea is just a little backwards in its thinking. Basically, do not try, do not, uh, do not outdo yourself to find wealth in this life because your true treasures are after right. you die. Basically, the 70 virgins are waiting. It's a very anti-capitalistic notion, right? That, that it's for the poor. Well, it's the also kingdom just, of God is for the poor. It's almost an anti-living notion. Basically, don't live your lives. Don't well, outstretch yourselves because the kingdom of God the is waiting. God's for you. coming. Yeah, so you why won't the fuck need else to. would you need to? Uh, finally, on wealth, there's Q sixteen thirteen. No man can serve two masters, for a person will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mammon, right? So you can't be both rich, rich and, and serve God. It's impossible. <laughs> yeah. That, that, this, this fascination with the poor, once again, attributes the idea that Jesus was just a wandering countryside scribe who decided to uh, talk about what he was thinking, about what he was seeing. He was a philosopher at best. If, if he existed. If he existed. So instead of focusing on the identity of Jesus, right, the, the messiahship of Jesus, Q focuses on the attitudes and behaviors that will be found under God's reign or, or in God's kingdom, right? Yeah. So for Q, Jesus was the best model of these attitudes and behaviors, but he certainly wasn't a, a Messiah or no, Savior. he was no Savior. He, w he was literally just somebody who had learned enough. Like, like these, uh, these gurus that people go to. That, that's basically right, what like Jesus Like the cynic was. sages, these wandering Greek cynic sages. Yeah. So now we get to Jesus' death. Interestingly enough, even though there's no explicit narration of Jesus' death or his resurrection in Q, it's not actually entirely silent on it. Uh, now remember, this is why they didn't consider it a gospel, right? Until yeah. the Gospel of Thomas was found. But, like I said, it's not entirely silent. They do mention in one of Q's sayings about the cross. It's found in Q 14.27, The one who does not take one's cross and follow after me cannot be my disciple. So this actually seems to convey kind of a vague understanding of the manner of Jesus' death, the shame of it all, um, and that to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to be willing to undergo a similar fate. Um, so they seem to be uh, aware of, of what happened to Jesus, that he, that he actually was crucified. Yeah, once again, this, this lends credence to the idea that the Gospels uh, and the miracle stories were expounded upon because of the shame that this Messiah, this person that these people were following, was crucified like a common criminal. So there's another Q saying found in 6, 22 to 23. Uh, Blessed are you when they insult and persecute you and say every kind of evil against you because of the Son of Man. Be glad and exult, for vast is your recompense in heaven. For this is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the essence of the uh, so-called Deuteronomistic view of the prophets. It's found in Jeremiah um, uh, later books in Jeremiah, the, the kind of throughout the Second Temple period. Um, what happens in this view is that there's a, a cycle of, of, of Israel, this historical cycle, where Israel is, is sinful. And then there are a bunch of prophetic calls to repentance. They're ignored. <laughs> God punishes Israel. There are renewed calls to repentance and threats of judgment. In this view it's common to reject and even murder the prophets. Now, this view is found throughout the Book of Mormon. Oh, constantly. Uh, literally, Joseph Smith is obsessed with killing off the prophets. So, right. People, anytime you go up and you, you preach God's word to the people in the Book of Mormon, you're going to get fucking yeah. stones throwing. You're going to get, uh, yeah, literally, unless you're Alma the Younger standing up on a fucking wall and Samuel. people have to, uh, Sam, who the fuck cares? <laughs> Samuel the Lamanite. Close enough. Uh, even if you're Samuel the Lamanite and the fucking arrows won't hit you, they're still going to run up the mountain and try and get you. They're right. going to try and chop you the fuck up. So, exactly. yeah. so note that the deaths of the prophets don't have any salvation value, right? They're, no. not, they're not deaths as ransom for other people. They're just kind of seen as the natural progress of what happens when you stand up for God. Yeah. There's an evil world. Evil hates good. They'll jump in and try to kill you. Yeah. And literally, once again, I want to point out, you are insulted. They persecute you. There is evil against you. This is talking about a life that is unenjoyable, and yet there is something to look forward to. So why even pay attention to this life is what that is saying. Right. We find this view uh, as well in Q 11, 47-51. Woe to you, for you built the tombs of the prophets, but your forefathers killed them. 
Therefore also the wisdom said, I will send them prophets and sages, and some of them they will kill and persecute, so that a settling of accounts for the blood of all the prophets poured out from the founding of the world may be required of this generation. Again, in Q13, 34 through 35, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones so sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her nestlings under her wings, and you were not willing. You remember that Jesus said that about eight fucking times in the Book of Mormon? Yeah, just when he came to kept America. throwing it out there like, oh, I wish I could gather you like hens. In fact, it was so often that it became irritating. You wish he would just say something Shut else. Shut the fuck up. We heard it already, Yeah, Jesus. we don't care about your fucking hens. So, um... <laughs> so... Interestingly enough, if you go back to the Old Testament, can you think of a single prophet that was murdered? Off the top of my head, I can't. Isaiah wasn't murdered. Elijah wasn't murdered. Elisha wasn't murdered. Moses wasn't murdered. I mean, hell, None of the patriarchs were murdered. Fucking Jonah was living in a whale, climbed out, and yeah, he. So I don't know of a single Old Testament prophet that was murdered, but somehow this became a very common type of thinking and and theology and philosophy. So this is absorbed into the the Q. Uh, community's view of Jesus' death, right? His fate um, was pretty much that he would suffer like all the rest well, of the prophets. It was pretty rejection, much sealed from the moment he opened his lips. Marginalization, uh, shame. You remember Q, early on, John is also a preacher of repentance. He shares Jesus' re rejection by this generation. No one likes him, right? He's uh, possessed by a demon. <laughs> uh, so, um, certainly, Q has this view of, of prophets in general and Jesus in particular that, you know, you have to be willing to take up this cross like I did yeah. and share in the same shameful rejection and death that I did or else you can't be my disciple. Essentially, life sucks, but hey, you'll be God's right-hand man at the end. Again, th this view lost when Q is incorporated into Matthew and Luke. You lose this entirely um, because it just becomes a couple verses in, in the vast book of these things. Yeah, the, well, the, you can only copy so much, you know. Right. Q. <laughs> so Q mentions resurrection, but never for Jesus himself. Now, this is very important because, as you remember, Q mentions Jesus' death literally with one sentence, you should follow me up on the cross. So this is what Q has to say about resurrection. In Q722 says, go report to John what you see here and see. This is what we talked about before, right? John's apostles, disciples are coming to Jesus and saying, are you the one, basically? He yeah. says, go report to John what you hear and see. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk around, the skin disease are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are given good news. So people are being resurrected. Yeah. Um, and once again, this is common. Jesus has already made it plain and clear that this is normal. Apollonius, I mean, how many other people there were running around healing? Right. Um, resurrection also appears uh, in Q11, 31 through 32. Remember about Queen of South and Nineveh? Yep. Queen of the South will be raised to the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came to the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something more than Solomon is here. Ninevite men will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the teaching of Jonah. And look, something more than Jonah is here. Again, both those times, something more than Solomon, something more than Jonah. Yeah. yeah. Um, nowhere does it say the Messiah is going to be resurrected, or Jesus is going to be resurrected, or, or he would be, or it would be an expectation. Just that a general resurrection is going to occur sometime before God's judgment, right? These people who repented will rise up and condemn this uh, wicked generation. Yeah, it, it's a very common theme, the idea that, yes, we're going to die, we're going to go to heaven, we're going to get all this paradise, but better yet, we get to stand in judgment of all the people who wronged us. Right. So, I mean, why the fuck wouldn't anybody want this? This sounds great. Yeah. Uh, so the question becomes, why did Q not reference Jesus' resurrection? Was it not aware of it? That's possible if it was so early that um, it didn't have uh, the, widespread. the widespread kind of knowledge of other sects of Christianity who were proclaiming this. However, remember that Q was likely edited sometime later. And that author certainly would have had uh, knowledge of the... Uh, the resurrection the, the story. The story of the resurrection, the proclamations of Paul, etc., etc. So... Uh, it's unlikely that, that the Q community was entirely cut off from the rest of the Christian groups. More likely that they didn't either buy the resurrection, that it happened, or they simply didn't use the resurrection as a metaphor to explain Jesus' death. So the question is, how did they view what happened to Jesus, right? 
We know that that he um, was rejected. We know that he died. What happened after? And th- this whole line of thinking is based on one verse in Q. So it's a little it's a little loose. But uh, well, I wouldn't say so much loose. I mean, all you have to do is compare it to what's been talked about before. Right. Pain, so let's, prophets. Let's prophets. set it up. In the Bible, both Elijah and Enoch were taken up prior to their deaths. Right. The terms most commonly used to describe this have to do with uh, being removed from sight or disappearing or no longer appearing or no longer being seen. So in 2 Kings 2.12, Elisha no longer saw Elijah, right? He went up in yeah, the fucking he went up chariot in heaven, yeah. um, and he, he was, was no twinkled. longer seen. Yeah. In Genesis uh, 5.24, Enoch was pleasing to God and he was not found for God removed him. So, you know, he disappeared, he wasn't found. Um, similar terms are used in 1 Enoch, that's uh, Apocrypha, and the Wisdom of Solomon. Uh, interestingly enough... In Wisdom of Solomon 4, 10 through 11, it says, There was one who pleased God and was loved by him, and while living among sinners he was taken up. He was caught up, lest evil change his understanding or deceit deceive his soul. So apparently God's fucking around with free will, right? That's so fucking important, it's the basis for the most theodicies against evil. So, so let's see, God. Uh, how, what level of innocence does somebody have to be for you to save them from the evils? I mean, uh, what level of innocence does a child have to reach before you save them from what's going to happen? Before you flood the entire fucking yeah, earth. Yeah, be, be, before you send fucking she-bears to eat them. I mean, literally, what, what level of innocence do we need here? So this, this um, view of the assumption, right, this assumption metaphor that he was taken up, uh, is probably in view in Q1335. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So basically, given this, this single verse, it's possible, and maybe probable, that Q is using an assumption theology, just like Elijah and uh, Enoch, um, that there Jesus was taken up. Now the one problem with this is that Elijah and Enoch were taken up before they died. <laughs> uh, Jesus apparently, you know, was crucified on the cross. Was crucified. They're right? they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, maybe, right? Well, he died. He was murdered by people by this generation and can be judged for. But, but he was also taken. taken up. Well, and the reason why I think there's there's more evidence for this than just that one single verse is is look at the other verses that discuss resurrection. It's all about coming back and standing in judgment. So doesn't it make sense? That their teacher, who was just crucified, oh, he's not really dead. He was really twinkled up into heaven. And when God's ready, he'll stand in judgment. Right. There was a widespread uh, expectation that Elijah would return, right, before the coming of the Messiah. Uh-huh. So typically, it's in First Enoch also that he describes a future role in the apocalypse to Enoch. It's typical for this assumption theology that God to take these people up and hold them in reserve for some future function. So now, you can kind of see... What may have happened, right? If there ever was an empty tomb, this the the first kind of resolution of this cognitive dissonance may have been assumption theology. What? There's no corpse. Uh, clearly, it wasn't because he was taken to the um, the graveyard of the the sinful people, which is why he was fucking executed in the first place because he sinned uh, blasphemy. Um, it wasn't because of that. It was because his body was taken up. Yeah. That's why it's not there. It was taken up. Yeah, that's why it's um, not among the prophets and among the people of the righteous. It's, right. It was taken up. Yeah. The assumption, there's an empty tomb, is the proof of assumption. You start awaiting Jesus' return at the end times. And then, just like that cargo cult with the big old fucking cargo ship. Oh, God, ship, I love that one. Yeah, you know, uh, the ship came, it's going to come coming, again it's coming, it's coming, with all came. of the dead people. Oh, wait. <laughs> The time has passed. The ship already came. You missed you it. I mean, literally, <laughs> it's the same as these end of the world shit. Oh, Jesus is supposed to come on that day. Well, he didn't destroy the world, but he came in a spiritual right. manner. Just I mean, like the Jehovah's Witness. Cognitive dissonance. So you say, he's coming, he's coming. Oh, he already came. And that's that may be how the resurrection story came, right? Oh, the empty tomb. Well, that was because he was resurrected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, none of this stuff... Is clear in Matthew and Luke. They have different agendas. But if you pull Q out, you can start seeing how maybe the earliest uh, Jesus community, or certainly one of the earliest, uh, kind of resolved their cognitive dissonance about his death and uh, came up with kind of the idea of the, the assumption. And now that that's actually an, an important factor in dealing with Q and the Mark and Spine, things like this, is uh, these need to be pulled away as two separate texts. They are two separate writers.
two different right, literary absolutely. Just texts. the same as you want to treat Mark uh, by himself and look at the agendas of Mark. You want to take him uh, independently of Matthew. You want to read Matthew by itself, Luke and John, and see exactly what these guys are trying to get after. You have to pull Q out and read it by itself uh, in order to see what the ethics of Q are, what the views of death, miracles, kingdom of God, uh, and, and this possible assumption. But it also helps you see what the Luke and, and Matthew agenda was because you can see where they have changed Q between right. them. Right, exactly. So, so uh, that is Q. And in two weeks, we are going to have uh, John Loftus on the program to discuss the Christian delusion, the uh, why I became an atheist, and his newest book, The End of Christianity. Ought to be a peach. Yay! Thank you.